Welcome, everybody, to episode 50 of the DC Comics News Podcast. Hard to believe, but we are at 50 episodes. Pretty incredible. As always, we'll be talking about everything DC, uh, movie, TV, streaming, comics, and everything in between. So let's just jump right on into the movie news. Uh, And it looks like Birds of Prey is tracking to have a $49 million opening. Uh, So, Steve, what do you think about that? That's impressive on pre-sales alone for a comic book series that only real fans would have heard of. But obviously, with the traction that Margot Robbie has had as Harley Quinn, that doesn't surprise me. She was probably the biggest success story to come out of the uh mixed review uh is the probably the best way of putting how people felt about the suicide squad movie so yeah impressive um great cast sounds like it's got a good story coming classic uh villain from the comics so um that makes me happy because obviously for a long long time fans around the world probably thought the dc movies were dead in the water after uh, the Justice League fiasco and the poor reception to what I thought were some fantastic films in Man of Steel and Batman vs Superman, but there's no accounting for taste. Everyone's different, and that's what makes the world go round. So if Birds of Prey is tracking that pre-sales, then fingers crossed it's going to do even better in reality. So yeah, that that's good news as far as I'm concerned. What did you make of that, sir? I was really impressed by the way we were able to use the analytics from Shazam to make this estimation, prediction, and possible just uh, early anticipation, followed by maybe even surpassing it. I think it's really, as you guys pointed out, um, a testament to Margot Robbie. And I said her name right correctly because Steve said it first, which prevented me from saying it incorrectly. (laughs) And because he did... welcome. Thank you. Thank you. See, the British civility, which we'll hear about later uh, from a snippet we've got, is something that saves this episode every time. And right there, it's demonstrated. She was a star out of Suicide Squad. I really think if there had been anyone else who had made as strong of an impression, we would see maybe an appearance from them just to sort of connect with that. But because she was such a standout and because I think the point that's really going to come across so well is this idea behind her emancipation. She's really driving this vehicle forward. And I feel like behind it, Margot Robbie has that force of will, that recognition that she has hit her groove. And that feeling can only lead to this ability to sort of see everything very clearly and just what is possible. And they're making the best of it. And it sounds like based on the fact that it's going to be, it looks like even less to make than Shazam, that whatever it makes beyond this initial prediction could be a, a huge representation of what we could hope for as maybe sequels, maybe one, maybe more. Um, Brad, what's your take on this story? My friend? You know, love it or hate it. The one thing that is undeniable that came out of Suicide Squad was that everyone loved Margot Robbie as uh, Harley Quinn. And I think that these tracking numbers demonstrate that people still love her in that role. I mean, if you go to any any con, you're going to see people dressed up in her daddy's little monster costume. And now even 
uh, in fact, in New York Comic Con, I saw a few from Birds of Prey, and I think this is just a testament to um, how people like her representing the character and how much she enjoys playing it. So I think that um, I think forty nine million sounds definitely achievable, and at, at this point going into it, I wouldn't be surprised if it makes uh, if it makes a little more. And continuing with Birds of uh, Prey news, we did get some more footage at the Game Awards with a slightly new trailer with some new footage. Steve, what do you think about this new trailer? Um, yeah, it was good fun. The trailer was really, really good fun. And what got to me is because all the footage we'd seen previously um, seemed to have it in very like sepia tone colors, gritty and earthy. But what got me was the vibrant, like disco almost colors. And even when they're walking down the street, like the, the, the roads bright purple, it seems like really high contrast and actually quite punchy action as opposed to what I was expecting um, actually seeing. So lots of action. Um, every character's involved. We see Cassandra, we see Huntress. There's stunts, there's vehicles, and it's everything you'd want from a action-packed DC comic book movie. So I'm very excited indeed. What did you make of it, Seth? I love the added scenes and the way they introduce just a little bit more of what I'm looking forward to from this trailer and from the movie as a whole because of this trailer is what looks like great chemistry. I mean, there was a real fun vibe of she's got anger issues. No, I don't. And there was something just light and quippy about it that felt honest. It, it felt like something that you just sort of dropped in on. And everything that led up to that moment was so much fun for me. I think the fighting looks great. I love the colors you mentioned. It, it makes me wonder, too, based on those earlier versions we've seen and now this version, if we're going to get a chance to see things play out maybe with uh, a repeat, but with different tonalities, or maybe they're still working that out. Because one of the fun things about Harley is that she slips into, I mean, what I've seen in the comics and what I've enjoyed just in, in the character shifts we got to see in Suicide Squad and something I'm looking forward to in this movie is the way she can shift from dimensions of her personality so clearly, where she seems to be talking from one perspective of her thought process and then from another, and how each is represented very distinctly and I can't help but wonder how that might play into some really fun experiences with the colors, as Steve, you really wisely pointed out and, you know, noticed so clearly. Brad, what was your take, my friend? Yeah, I can't wait to see exactly uh, Huntress and her uh, her anger issues. That was uh, that was pretty funny. Uh, I, I did enjoy that. And and Steve, I'm glad you brought up the colors because those colors really pop, and I really noticed that too. And I think that that's uh, I, that's really fitting the overall tone of what the film so far has shown us. So um, it just looks like it's going to be a fun ride, uh, and I can't wait to see Ewan McGregor play Black Mask. From what I've seen, he's going to do oh, yeah. a great job. Yeah, I think that, and I and I love the idea of having Black Mask in the movie. He was, I thought he was always kind of an underrated character that deserved a bit of a spotlight shown. So uh, I'm glad to see that happening as well. And moving on from Birds of Prey, we did get a, a release date for Shazam 2. Uh, Steve, what do you think about this? And uh, the lightning-chested K 
Captain Marvel, I um, refuse to call him Shazam, um, is on a roll. His new movie is coming. It's definitely on its way. And the tie-ins with hopefully the Black Adam movie will will get something uh, rolling too. Because Shazam, to me, was a bit of a surprise. Because honestly, I wasn't expecting to like it anywhere as much as I did. The casting was great. The visuals were great. The times where, even though it was clearly a family film, a film that anyone can watch, there were elements of horror there. The Seven Deadly Sins were brilliantly portrayed. And the reveal of the whole Marvel family at the end of the film, just literally, it was a boy band, punch the air moment. If the second film captures the same kind of magic and tempers it with the same humor and action it, it can't help but be, ex- be a success and with the rundown of actual movie launches they've got with two great dc movies next year and then three in 2021 another three in 2022 uh the future is looking decidedly cataclysmic uh that's my dc quip for the day seth um what did you make of it I'm not sure if mine will end with anything so crisp as cataclysmic, but I can only say that I'm really looking forward to this release. And Steve, I'm I'm happy to agree with you that the sequel for this original Captain Marvel movie is one that we should all really look forward to because of the, the great tone that the first one set and the way that it helped introduce some really fun ideas and dimensions to the universe it's showing us. One of the things that caught me the most was the idea how the opportunity to be the bearer of the lightning wasn't just offered to Billy. There were others it was offered to before, but they didn't get it. And clearly with Savannah, we saw what it can do to a psyche. So who else might have missed the lightning and found another way to get a similar source of power is something we can explore, not only have this great follow-up to Black Adam coming out just a few months before that, whether or not that's something that will be a shared energy is, of course, for speculation until we actually get a chance to see it. But I also feel that By announcing this date and how close it is to Black Adam, the closer we get, the news release that comes out and the momentum that's created can be a benefit for both. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how that plays out, as well as this this lightning that's now striking a second time and the effect that it's going to be having for other DC films that we'll be talking about. Brad, what was your take, my friend? I love that it is so quick behind uh, Black Adam. Uh, they can do so many fun things with marketing and, and post-credit scenes tying the two movies together. That's going to be that's going to be fun to watch. And my birthday is April second, so I know what I'm going to be doing on my birthday nice. that year. So it's kind of like it's kind of, <laughs> to me, it's kind of like a uh, a little bit of a birthday present. So early yeah, birthday uh, present, Brad. Yeah, Happy birthday, yeah. bro. <laughs> So, yeah, I, uh, I dig that. And, uh, yeah, I think that's I just really like that it's, it's released so quickly after Black Adam. It's like that, you know, like I say, hitting that iron while it's hot. Um, and, and I think there's cool opportunities to tie those two films uh, together. And in other movie release news, uh, Flash, it looks like, has a release date of July 1st, 2022. 
Steve, what do you think of this? Uh, this news just makes me want to jump, and jump up and down with joy. I mean, like I said, with Black Adam literally just a few months uh, in front of Shazam and then literally May, June, July, three months after Shazam, we get the flash. What is happening? Um, is this a dream? Is this a sea of Fanta? I can't believe it. It's unbelievable. It's great. Um, both are red and yellow clad heroes, the quick and the hilarious on each other's heels and on big screens in Dolby surround sound. What can make any DC fan happier than that? I mean, back in the day, we had to wait a whole year between Lord of the Rings movies and now in the space of 12 months, we're getting three Black Adam, Shazam and The Flash. What's there not to be happy about? This just makes me smile like the Joker on Laughing Gas. Seth, what about you, buddy? This makes me smile so brightly. So I couldn't be happier for every Flash fan who will get a chance to see their hero, our hero on screen to witness so much of what we've yearned for after some really great moments in Justice League where I thought Ezra Miller did wonderful things and this long process it's I get it you know the the best things in life they the things we work for the things we want the most they ask the most of us you know they ask for a lot of work so I'm only really thinking that this should be a really deserved ending when they finish getting through all of this work. This movie comes out and, and we get a chance to cheer along with it. And there's got to be something about lightning, about three characters wearing that in that 12 month span and these movies coming out. And the only other thing that really catches my attention is Jeff Johns played a significant role writing Flash comics. And I would love to see the opportunity to extend the connection between Shazam, the levity that I think Zachary Levi and Ezra Miller could share, and that I think, uh, you know, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, also has demonstrated his comedic chops, that there is something that these three movies can take advantage of with this close uh, release time frame, and that all it takes is just that same amount of work, that same amount of want, and Really, we could have something amazing, but no matter what, we're going to see a Flash movie. And that that makes my heart light up. It's something I've wanted to see since I was a little boy reading the comics, since the first time we got a chance to see a Flash television show, ever since the Flash came back to television. And it's a, uh, it's a wish fulfilled. And I'm just looking forward to that date when I can say, ah, it's finally here. I couldn't be more thrilled. Amen to that. Brad, what's your take, my friend? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just so glad to see uh, that this is finally starting to come together uh, because it just it, it, it seemed like it had been in development uh, hell for a while now. Uh, and just the fact that the, the wheels are turning now, it's, it's great to see that come together. And I'm happy about that because, uh, you know, like you're saying, I think Esmond Miller did some great things with the character. So. And he also seems to, like Margot Robbie, seems to really be behind playing the character and is fighting for it. So I think I think that's a good thing. And I think that that can only help make it a good movie when we do get to see it uh, on July 1st. 
2022. So, yeah, I'm just glad to see that, you know, that it's starting to coalesce and become something. And I'm sure that we'll have a lot more news stories, uh, you know, about this as as we get closer to that. And moving on uh, to another movie that we do have lots of news about over the past few months. Uh, Joker has gotten some uh, SAG nominations. Uh, Steve, what do you think about this? For the Screen Actors Guild uh, to get behind Joaquin Phoenix and this film is huge because this is a guild made up by the people behind uh, the scenes, the people who who make these films. This is like um, me voting for Seth for best podcast because, you know, that's the, the way to go. It's brilliant. And whatever else may be said about the Joker movie, some call it disturbing, overly violent. Um, it glorifies um, the, the, the antisocial behaviour. What you cannot take away from it is the film made people talk. The film was a success because it changed perspectives and because of a fantastic performance by Joaquin Phoenix. Actually, a fantastic performance from everybody involved. So for the Screen Actors Guild to recognise this film by nominating it, Again, it can only do good for the continued success of this film because it's still in theatres. It's already been announced for digital and uh, DVD Blu-ray release. And the world has gone crazy for this film, which is a film many of us said we didn't even know we wanted. But when it came out, it changed the game. It's changed how people perceive comic book movies. It's changed in a lot of ways for the better uh, how people look and treat mental illness. So whether you liked it or not, it's a success story in every way, shape or form. So thank you, SAG, um, for putting this nomination forward for such a out of left field runaway success story. Seth, what did you make of it? I was really intrigued by the announcement. And also when I looked into this story and saw what the awards were for, the fact that it's for an outstanding performance by a stunt ensemble. And then also Joaquin Phoenix getting the nomination for male actor in a leading role category, both of which are impressive recognitions because his performance is one standalone standout. It, it was career defining. It was character defining. It, it created a recognition with the Joker that others can learn from, but emulating it would not be possible because the degree of authenticity that he had to uh, demonstrate, portray, and also draw from within. And you can't copy that. You have to find it. He did an amazing job of doing that. And this uh, stunt ensemble team did an amazing job of making the violence feel so terrifying in its normalcy in the way that it felt like it could be something that happened right next to you. And it would be so scary because of the almost ordinary or non-theatrical quality of it. The other thing that I'm so intrigued by is that this story mentions that the other male actor in a leading role nominee that will be in this category is none other than former Batman Christian Bale for the film Ford versus Ferrari. Could be a really interesting take once the awards are announced and should Joaquin Phoenix win this one, perhaps some viewpoints on what the, the passing of the Batman legacy means moving into the character of Joker in this story. 
But I think the narrative here that, that really everyone's excited for is so much about what Steve was talking about, about the way this movie captured our attention and also connected with so many of us regarding our hopes and our fears. Brad, what was your take, my friend? You know, I, I find the stunt uh, very, the stunt nomination very interesting because, you know, you're absolutely right. There was something so visceral about these stunts. Todd Phelps went so out of his way to kind of ground this movie in a gritty reality. And those stunts did seem so real. And it's good to see that that the SAG, you know, they did realize that and they did take notice of that. And I think that really this is going to be the, the, the start of a very um, uh, significant award season for uh, for Joker. Uh, because in our next news story, we learned that it also has received four Golden Globe nominations. And what's interesting about that is a lot of Golden Globe nominations go on to be nominated for the Oscar. So, um, so Steve, what do you think about that? Exactly what you said. Uh, the Golden Globes are frequently clear indicators as what's uh, Oscar-worthy, too. And when you look at the four categories here, it's three of the top ones we're talking best motion picture we're talking best director and best actor and then this is actually my favorite nomination best original score because the music in this film is absolutely phenomenal atmospheric oh it's beautiful emotional deep it's one of the best movie scores i've heard in a long long time so those four alone listen if it wins one, great. But I actually believe it's in with a really good chance of grabbing all four. Um, so SAG Awards, Golden Globes, Oscars, here we come. Um, Joaquin Phoenix is going to be calling home afterwards and say, hey, mum, it's Oscar. Um, can we talk? Seth, what did you make of it? <laughs> I want to hear him make that call, and then I also want to hear the voice he chooses to represent Oscar when he explains how he's going home with Joaquin, um, because that that should just be a really fun call to be a fly on the wall for. I'm really excited about all four of these nominations. I completely agree with you both. We've seen how, in so many ways, uh, the Golden Globe nominations and the Golden Globe Awards can be a... Not quite a template. Uh, there's a word I'm looking for, a precursor, almost like a, uh, uh, a setup or a recognition of the potential outcomes when we get to the Oscars. And the possibility of sweeping all four of these categories is completely within scope. And I'm also intrigued because I thought that one of the, the most powerful things that, that really stuck with me, aside from Joaquin Phoenix's performance, is the original score. My wife and I both agree that there's that that moment in the bathroom where he discovers his dance. Oh, yeah. There's <laughs> such a, a peaceful tranquility to it. Um, it reminded me of the time that I was lucky enough to study Tai Chi for a little while. And that feeling of knowing the movements with your eyes closed, with your breath, and the way he breathed himself into those movements and the music that captured that moment... It was it was really so heartfelt. You you wanted that moment for him. You believed that he had earned that moment and that this was, again, 
kind of going back to that Flash movie about the hard work that's put in, not only for the character, but for Joaquin Phoenix's performance. He he earned that moment. And the music was such a great reflection of it. And the combination of the two speak to both of their uh, strongest qualities and why they should probably take home those awards. And the direction clearly would, would point to, yes, let's give the guy who was behind the camera one. And for the package as a whole, this makes a lot of sense for that four category sweep. Brad, how about you, my friend? Yeah, uh, to me, I love that the score got a nomination. And uh, because to me, that was the one that I hoped people appreciated. Uh, To me, it's not a surprise, given the reaction by critics and audiences that it was going to be nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor. That was kind of, to a degree, almost a given. But that score, I'm glad that it's being recognized because it is, it's, it's incredible. And, uh, I, you know, I, and I really, I would not be surprised if it walks away with all of these awards. So, you know, it's, it's about that time that uh, even if it's not a superhero movie per se, comic book movies really get their due. So, yeah, if it was up to me, it would go away, would walk away with all of those awards. So good luck. <laughs> Guess we'll see what happens, uh, you know, soon enough. And we did, the uh, next news stories, we did finally get a trailer for Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, and that kind of broke the internet. Uh, Steve, what do you think about this? Hot damn, that trailer. Wow, 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 wow. We've gone from, just like you said, Brad, um, not really a superhero movie, but still a comic book movie, to arguably the most comic book trailer I've seen in donkey's years i mean from the moment she's sliding around to hitting a machine gun making the bullet fly out of it and slapping the bullet away with her bracelet the lasso works got me really excited because that's something we don't see enough of um in any live action interpretation of wonder woman i want to see her go nuts with that lasso and round up villains like their steers in the prairies and taking them down and the reveal of the golden 80s disco costume there's so much to take away from this trailer, not least that Gal Gadot was born to play Wonder Woman. She is an absolute phenomenon, like Margot Robbie has become Harley Quinn, Gal's become uh, Wonder Woman, and bless Ezra Miller, much maligned film Justice League, but i got to say again, he was the main standout from it for me. So, what a trailer, Wonder Woman 84. Um, it takes me back to being 14, 15 again and that era and the remix for New Order's Blue Monday in that trailer. Yeah. Oh, wowzer, wowzer, wowzer. I am so excited. Seth, please save me from drooling all over my computer. <laughs> Somebody get this man a handkerchief, stab. Um, happy to do so, my friend. Happy to point out so many great things that I loved. One, the action, which when Brad and I were talking last episode was teased to us so eloquently with that great bullet smack with the bracelet. But man, riding the lightning, the the sliding around, the kicks, the application of her powers, the gold suit, her in the gold suit and clearly taking on some heavy ordnance and smacking it away. And then the light touches, the breaks in all of that, the The moments where she's having a one-on-one as Diana, as a woman with another woman, and having that conversation that 
we've all had at some point with someone that we're talking with about, have you ever fallen in love? And how Diana's response is yes. And then when she asked that question back, the reply is, oh, yes, many times, which seems to set up so much great potential for the dynamic between these two. Uh, the, the style, the fashion was phenomenal. And and it was all overlapped so, so sweetly. There was just this amazing feeling of, yes, this is a comic book movie. Yes, it has all of the passion and the ferocity, but it also has the important character moments. And it also has these great just light moments. Steve, you know, recognizing what is and isn't um, art. Um, <laughs> oh, that was brilliant. I love that bit. <laughs> now, I, I was hoping Kelly would be on for this because I wanted to get her perspective on something, which was I was excited after I saw a clip and watched it on my phone. And then I wanted to watch it on the big TV. And I'm like, Hunt, my wife, come check this out. They've got a new Wonder Woman trailer. Do you want to see it? And she's like, yeah, Wonder Woman was tough. I love that movie. As we're watching it, the one the one thing that just sort of stuck for her was the scene in the mall she felt that the riding boots suddenly had heels, where in other scenes it wasn't, you know, something that you could point out. It seemed like more she was wearing flats like you would find on a, uh, on a horsewoman's boots. And she said, you got to be killing me with this one. She's done everything else. She's got to be the toughest woman on screen. And she's in heels. Why has she got to run around in heels? And I thought to myself, OK, I'm sure there's an aesthetic. I'm sure there's a recognition of. Some of the moments when Diana or Wonder Woman, however you want to point to that character when she's wearing the boots, has worn boots with heels. And I, I get the value, but I was really sort of just surprised that for all the other stuff that she loved, the music, the fashion, the white dress when she gets out of the car, which was just, you know, such an exquisite moment of grace and the regal quality that. Steve, you rightly pointed out Gal Gadot brings to the role, the role she was born to play, but how this was something that really kind of stuck with her a little bit, because for all of that toughness, she didn't want to feel it. It was reduced by requiring the, the use of heels. And that 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 kind of surprised me. And I promised I'd bring it up as part of this, because I don't know who else out there might have had a similar or completely opposite reaction. And if either of you have any thoughts about or none at all, please feel free. <laughs> Brad, what was your take? Uh, you know, uh, one thing that uh, you guys didn't mention that kind of stuck out to me was Kristen Wiig as Cheetah, because we didn't get much of her, but in the tiny bit we did, she seemed like a sympathetic character. So I'm kind of curious what her character is going to be in the movie. But, you know, I loved the Blue Monday I loved the golden armor. I loved the uh, lasso to the lightning. I mean, this this uh, looks over the top in all the right ways. So I think that I think that we're in for a treat for this one, uh, for sure. So any uh, any other last thoughts on the trailer? Only that I go 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 no no go. <laughs> I'm going to say that after I butchered myself pretty impressively on the Guggenheim call, I was too hesitant to try and remember Kristen's wing names with any sort of reliability and just was like, uh, it, uh, the woman that she's talking to about love, about, uh, uh. so yes, Kristen Wig, uh, what I felt really caught my attention about her was when they're having that conversation about love 
And Diana's is yes, and it's forlorn because we know about her heartache. And Kristen Wiggs is like, yes, many times. And it reminds me of this friend, childhood friend I had growing up with, who every time he met someone new, he fell in love. And it was raw and wonderful and passionate. But then I remember once telling someone I knew, oh, yeah, you know, he's met someone, he fell in love. And their response was, yeah, but that guy falls in love every week. And it, it was a really impressive recognition of who this person was as a character, you know, and something that you could identify about them. That isn't I mean, falling in love should be something that we all do and be able to do it so readily as a gift. Falling in love every week might point to a problem. So I was intrigued by the part where Kristen Wiig says yes many times. But I, I agree with the idea of her being a sympathetic character. And I also felt that so far we've only seen her as glamour without any sort of transformation, which I'm not too surprised by considering how in Harley Quinn we, we haven't seen Black Mask as Black Mask. We've only seen the the early version before the transformation. So on both of those, I feel like that's something for the audience to discover either in later trailers or in the movie. Steve, since you were so polite, my friend, please, please tell me you got everything I asked you to hold on to while I blabbered. So. You didn't actually blabber because a lot of it was what I was going to point out. Kristen Wiig's um, appearance in the trailer is very understated, does not give anything away, and she just seems like a as you well said, sympathetic, likeable character. And obviously anyone who's read a Wonder Woman comic and knows the cheetah knows that that will change rapidly. But I also wanted to point out that I felt the chemistry, even in that tiny brief moment between the two actresses, was phenomenal. It felt almost like they were having a date themselves. And that to me is brilliant it's eye-opening it's different it's gutsy it's bold it's brave and it was something that you know really stood out for me uh, as well as the the moment as you said with the white dress and uh, diana being almost like an angel amongst uh, amongst humanity so so much to take away out of a 90 second trailer so yep i'm happy i'm excited i'm looking forward to it all right, and moving on to more Wonder Woman news, we did get some character posters uh, released, which are interesting. Now, we have seen the um, the Wonder Woman character poster, and these new ones are kind of similar to that. Steve, what do you think? I just love the whole 80s aesthetic. Maybe it's just rose-tinted glasses and me going back to my adolescent years and um that sudden moment when you're growing up where the girl who was in your class that you just wanted to um hide in a closet because she was icky suddenly takes on a brand new aspect when you think well actually she's not icky at all what's going on with me i hate her no i don't yes i do um and that whole thing of growing up and changing and the complete difference between Wonder Woman as she was in the first movie to this new bold confidence, knowing who she is in the second. But what struck me as well is Kristen Wiig's cat-like glance into the camera and the leopard print uh, skirt she's wearing and almost as if the transition from the small quiet scene we see here and in the trailer to full-on vicious cat lady is already starting to take place in those posters. And then, of course, you get Maxwell Lord with a face so smug, he's like a young Trump, but almost twice as slimy, uh, to Ewan McGregor. If that's even possible, <laughs> exactly. Trump is like a human slug with a 
dead cat on his head, but we digress. Um, Steve <laughs> Trevor's back. Um, listen, those colours, those schemes, that whole 80s vibe, it just makes me feel like a kid again. It really gets me excited. But uh, I just want to know, Steve Trevor, posters, trailer, how in the name of Zeus's bleep did he make it out? Or is the wool being pulled over our eyes? Mr. Singleton, what do you think? I love the posters. I love getting to see Wonder Woman in that gold outfit and just sort of, you know, see how it is just standing there from the side profile. I I love what you said about Kristen Wiig and the cat-like glances and the development of that uh, feline pattern, that wild feline pattern into her clothing. And this beginning growing awareness about who her character will eventually transform into. And with Steve, boy, the leather jacket and the fanny pack with that somewhat bewildered, somewhat, huh, look towards the camera is priceless. And of course, as you pointed out, it it mirrors and reflects, echoing our own confusion and dumbfoundedness about how could this person who made such an amazing sacrifice possibly be back if they are back? if any of this is at all real. Because so much of it in the trailer suggests this dreamlike quality to it. And the almost bringing to life through Diana's wish or her imagination. And generally, when those things are brought to life, it's not for good reasons. It's manipulation, it's subterfuge, it's the wool being pulled over our eyes. So. Is that what's happening? Is there a different magic at place? Is this eventually going to reveal something more impressive, more unlikely than we can initially consider from these early moments? I think one of the great things, much like Kristen Wiig's character, is the unfolding mystery that we're experiencing from now up until the release date. Brad, what's your take, my friend? Yeah, you know... Uh, Steve, you mentioned about that, you know, that scene between the two characters didn't give a lot away and neither does the cheetah's poster, which I kind of like. And I like that you mentioned that the cat-like glance, because I noticed that too. And I think the biggest mystery going into this movie is how are they going to bring Steve Trevor back? Uh, And, but, you know, he's got his character poster, so he's going to be front and center. So I think that that's one thing I'm very curious about how they're going to how they're going to work that in, but um, yeah, and I'm, I too I love the '80s aesthetic, so yeah, I, I I dug these posters. Looking forward to seeing them hung up at my local movie theater for sure. <laughs> hey, by the way, before we shift into our next story, I had a quick question because it could point to how one possibility of Steve Trevor's existence could come into play. Does anyone know what the object on the desk is? Because that's the one thing that's really capturing my attention while we're talking about this, is this idea that maybe that object on the desk has some fulfillment powers to it. And if it does, then that would be a way that it could inadvertently, through first activation, bring about Steve in this reality but also play into a larger story about Maxwell Lord, whose desires generally run a bit wilder than just getting back a lost love. 
but I couldn't tell what that object was. And I was curious if anyone else had any thoughts, recognitions, or speculative theories just based on that thing I mentioned. I have to be honest, Seth. I now have to go and watch that trailer again. Yeah, me I too. Didn't even spot it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Wowza! You've got some eagle eyes there, Hawk. <laughs> There's um, just a moment yeah. where you can see Max looking at this object he's uncovering on his desk, and his eyes are, are really lit up. And I just thought, okay, what 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 could this be? And while we're talking about how is it Steve could be back, well, usually magic or other powerful things can come into play. And I realized I don't know what that thing was. And I was kind of hoping one of you guys did. <laughs> now we're all going to have to go back and watch it again. It was the trailer rewatch device eration machine. <laughs> That's going to have to be the one. That's going to have to be the one. Well, thank thank you for, uh, you know, entertaining my, uh, my my question there before we slide into the next story, which. No, thank you for waking us up because. <laughs> what? Hey, browser. <laughs> Yeah, well, now, you know, we can all go back and please, guys, once you do watch it, text me. I'm really, really curious. And if you're listening, I want to know what you think, too. Dig deep, deep cut, <laughs> DC lore. Come on. What is it? Huh? Come on. And continuing on with uh, Wonder Woman related news, uh, Warner Brothers is reportedly developing an Amazon of the Mascara movie. So, Steve, what do you think about that? Thank you, Jesus. That's what I think about that. <laughs> oh, this is brilliant. This this can go in so many directions. I mean, think about the story possibilities. Uh, are we going to go back in time and see uh, Heracles and the birth of the Amazon nation, how Themyscira came to be in the first place, a young Queen Hippolyta, or are we going to go to the present? Are we going to see Donna Troy? Are we going to see Artemis? Are we going to see the whole Amazon race? I mean, how many ways could that story go? I mean, the idea of the Trench spin-off was fascinating, but I felt possibly quite limited because all you've got is mindless creatures that want to eat you. But the Amazons and Themyscira, that is a goldmine of storytelling. And that, to me, is genius marketing, great thinking. And if Paddy Jenkins is behind it, even if not as director, possibly an executive producer or, or, or someone to flesh out the story, then that to me sounds like a genius, genius idea. What about you, Seth? What do you think of this? Pure brilliance. What a way to recognize that you have so much fertile ground in which so many amazing stories can be told. And I'm trying to think about it now, but I'm having trouble coming across, a, you know, in my recollection, a comic book series that's done this. You know, this feels like relatively new area to explore. And because of that, so much can be crafted about the myth, the lore. Yes, we can go back in time. We can see the earliest roots. We can see such a great possibility of characters, whether it's Artemis, whether it's Donna Troy. And I'm also thinking about the, the possibilities that Themyscira isn't something we see with the naked eye. It's a world far from ours, separated by whatever you want to call it. But the dimension it exists within might be a place where more is possible. And we could see characters like Cersei, who has proven to be quite a thorn oh, in the side of yeah. Wonder Woman, hmm. of, of the Amazons, 
And and also the rise of, of a hero to combat her, to lead the Amazons when Diana is not there or before she comes to be an example for her to look upon as who she can be, a young Hippolyta. We have a lot of ways we can go. And because we have the story of a people, we have a history that can be explored from the present back through the past and understanding those those powerful things that make what could be the littlest moments or decisions made in a moment that can change the course direction or the possibility uh, of these stories and and this amazing island of people i i think it's amazing i love the idea that patty jenkins will be the uh executive producer and that this means that we've we've got that presence there that that can also point to how this can be such an important chapter in the story of Wonder Woman and yet at the same time also tell an amazing independent story about who she comes from and the ideals that she was raised believing and that she takes now into our world. So many wonderful things are really capable here. Brett? Yeah, there's so much ground that they can cover and so many cool stories that they can tell with all of this and i i love also like you guys are saying that uh patty jenkins is is going to stay involved as an executive producer uh i think it's it's a win-win all the way around so i hope that you know as time moves on that this really does go into production because this would be i think this would be a very cool movie and i i so hope they would bring donna troy into it if they do. And I think Cersei is a great idea for, uh, for a villain. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think they could be really onto something here. So I hope it, uh, I hope it, we do get to see this eventually down the line. And moving on, uh, the game of Thrones guys are, uh, developing a biopic of, um, H.P. Lovecraft based on the graphic novel. Uh, and recently, the Game of Thrones guys, David uh, Beinoff and uh, D.B. Weiss, uh, have just dropped out of developing Star Wars. So it's kind of cool that this would be a possible new project for them. Uh, Steve, what do you think? I'm just absolutely furious at myself that I missed this comic book series. How did I miss that? I am such a huge H.P. Lovecraft fan that I am now in deep awe that I've missed a comic book series which looks uh, at his life. And for what I can tell, speaking to people since I found out about this story, is that um, this comic book series isn't just his life as documented. It's also trying to explain his own phobias, fears, and, and um, what he he was like internally to explain some of the books he wrote. I mean, because Call of Cthulhu, Mountains of Madness, the Necronomicon, the, the collection of his stories, all the way to his unfinished novel, which his friend August Derleth finished um, up after his death, and Whisper in the Darkness, and all these horror stories. That whole Cthulhu mythos is one that's affected horror, the entire genre of horror, since he wrote them. And we're talking back in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, I believe, that those books were written. And that whole thing of before this dimension existed, 
these dark overlords, these beings of immense power, ruled over the earth, but then they were banished to a dimension, but they're trying to get their way back in. And the whole thing of ties with Nazi Germany and trying to get those powers and those demons from beyond hell, that these are the gods before the gods, the darkness before the light, is always something that's fascinated me as a horror fan. So if this is going to be a movie, and it's based on one of my favourite writers, and it's also based on a Vertigo comic who, Brad, Seth, you all know, I adore, wowzer, yeah, what a way forward. This is something, again, that DC is doing differently. Marvel can have all the popcorn action adventure movies they want, DC are doing versatility, they're doing light and dark, they're doing deep, they're doing adult, and I'm excited as hell about it. Seth, what do you make of this story? Steve, I'm right next to you going, wait, when when did this come out? Why did I miss this? Why am I feeling How? this How? How did it happen? I don't know, but my, my, my face is getting strawberry red from my shoulders and neck all the way up to the tips of my temples. Uh, again, like I did when I was reading this and going... I missed what? Really? (laughs) Because the one thing I take the most from this story is my understanding of the response of so many people when it comes to Lovecraft, which is, oh, that disturbed guy and the dismissal of, yeah, he was into some messed up stuff and he thought he was a magician. And yet the power of his stories and their relevance for all the things that we are now influenced by and the writing that has come from it clearly is something that has been explored and I missed it. Um, And now, luckily, we know what it's based on so we can go back and read that, have the experience. But I also thought to myself, what an amazing way into a character where you're not just trying to read someone's biography of him as told through writings, readings, and interviews, but an attempt to visualize This other part of his life being haunted by dark visions and the way that shaped his thinking and his writing and all of the things that he explored and the possibility of getting a chance to hear that, read that, witness the the visuals that go with it. I'm disappointed that I did. I'm thrilled to know that if I do a little digging, there's a chance I can come across this um, and that in doing so, I can enjoy learning about an amazing figure who has a name that that will not go away that that is resonant that continues and because of that i can really look forward to this movie that's going to be based on that because i feel that as we've seen more recently with movies a recognition that what's going on that we see outwardly is not a clear understanding of what's going on internally. And that that story is one more often than not that we can relate to because it's based on the hopes and fears that shape us all. Brad, what was your take, my friend? I'm in the same boat as you guys. I did not realize that this book was a thing. So uh, especially as a Vertigo title, I feel ashamed that I did not know about it. Because I, because there was a time when I thank God I'm not alone. (laughs) I I can't believe it. I thought I'd be the only one. Because there was a time, you know, when it had the Vertigo label, it would matter. I would buy it because to me, Vertigo meant quality. And I don't know how this one slipped past me. Uh, But I think that that overall, I think H.P. Lovecraft is due for a uh, a biopic, and the fact that it's based on uh, this graphic novel, I think, is 
is a really a great thing for comics in general. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see this uh, this come together. But moving forward, let's also make this a shame-free, guilt-free podcast. There's no shame. <laughs> there's no guilt here. Okay, it's just something now we all get to experience together. And yeah, no. You still love Vertigo. We we know you both do. No one's ever going to doubt that. And if they do, well, you know, I'll get in the way and tell them knock it off. And thus the brotherhood becomes stronger because we are not alone. We are united in our grief at missing this wonderful comic book. <laughs> and now discovering it together. <laughs> the best way. Indeed. Yep. <laughs> And moving on, uh, John Lithgow, in his uh, press tour for uh, Bombshell, uh, let it be known that he turned down the role of the Joker in Tim Burton's 1989 Batman movie. Steve, what would you have to say about What think about this? John, John, John. What were you thinking? You know why? Because I thought... Who's going to want to go see a movie about Batman? Wow. Um, the sad part is, though, this guy is one hell of an actor. Um, throughout his career, I've been a fan of his, from the ridiculous uh, Bigfoot and the Hendersons through to his amazing role as Churchill in the recent series The Crown on Netflix. This guy is a phenomenal actor and I'd like to think that somewhere in the library of dreams out there there is a version of Tim Burton's Batman where he said yes and damn I'd love to see that film but <laughs> this goes down as one of those huge career mistakes that you'll never forget but hey you live and you learn he still made some great stuff he's still a fantastic actor but uh, he's lost his Jack Nicholson's game I guess um, but fascinating I mean it's amazing the stories you hear when actors say oh yeah I was going to do that just like uh, Mark Guggenheim did uh, of, of things that he's missed out on that he'd like to maybe try to get his hands on again but we'll discuss that later but Seth John Lithgow amazing actor he missed it what do you make of it? <laughs> What, what I really took to heart was the response from Conan O'Brien, who, as he heard him say that, go, yeah, who's going to want to watch Batman? Who watches that kind of stuff, right? Madam M, or no, M Butterfly. M Butterfly. That's what the young people want. That's the thing they're craving for. And it was just kind of almost like picking him, poking him with a stick a little bit. Because, you know, Lithgow at that time, as he describes it, was, was coming from the theater world. And I, I've always gotten a kick out of the uh, the ways that we get to see this this portrayal of actors when they're oh, but I'm in theater, theater can't go to movies because <laughs> because theater, and and yet this understanding that at some point if you make the transition you're you're better for it as Mark pointed out you know the fact that when you write in different mediums what you learn from it the things that can carry over. Um, and the other thing that I think that's important is not long after this, he goes on to play two fairly memorable villains from that time period, uh, you know, whether it was in Ricochet or later in Cliffhanger. I mean, this was a guy who has the ability to be quite menacing and then later has such a range in Third Rock from the Sun and other fun examples like that, that for me, I just think to myself, what could we have seen? What what 
what possibilities? And what if he'd said yes? And then he didn't get the role, but still was considered for one of the sequels. Who else could we have seen him as if maybe things still hadn't panned out for the Joker? If, if you know, he changed his mind after the first movie and said, well, get me into one of those movies instead. I'm, I've, I've done M. Butterfly. I'm clearly not making the money I could be in Batman. But what do you got for this Batman Returns? I, I have to wonder about the road not taken because, as he points out in this one, he didn't exactly make the best choice uh, at, at the possible time that he might have been able to take advantage of. And he's experienced a great history so or since then. But there's also this just this funny note about how he was viewing things. And clearly, as, as it's pointed out at the time, nobody anticipated this movie to become what it did. And here we all are later. Hindsight being 2020, armchair quarterbacks chuckling away at the possibility of John Lithgow seizing something that instead he just sort of flicked off his shoulder like, no, no, I'm going to convince Tim Burton you don't want me. I'm wrong for this role. What a terrible idea that must seem now. Brad, what's your take, my friend? Uh, Today earlier, I went to Big Apple Comic Con's Christmas Con and... Michael Uslan had a panel there, and he he was the executive producer of the movie, and he did play a a big role in getting a lot of these Batman movies made. Even I think he even worked through the Joker. And this story brought out two interesting things from the panel he had. Is one, he said that when he was first trying to uh, sell the idea of a Batman movie, he would go to different uh, you know different film studios, and one um, I forget which one it was, whoever made Annie, they they said. No, uh, we're, we're not making a Batman movie. No one cares about Batman. We made Annie, and, and, and that didn't do well. And that was based on, on funny books. So back in that day, I almost don't blame John Lickow for saying no, because at the time, nobody really cared about Batman. Uh, and it just kind of, you know, Batman 89 was really kind of a really big rebirth for Batman. So I almost can't blame John Lickow for thinking that nobody would care, because, you know, until the movie came out, Nobody was sure anybody would care. So, you know, it might have been a mistake, but I see where he was coming from at the time. And another thing from this panel is Uslan said that, you know, he'd been a Batman fan for uh, you know, a big part of his life. So he'd been trying to get the movie made for a while. And um, when The Shining came out, there was an ad in a newspaper with Jack Nicholson's famous, you know, here's Johnny picture. And he said he ripped that picture out of the newspaper uh, to keep with him as an idea of who would play the perfect Joker. So it's kind of interesting from that point to John Lithgow being involved to back to Jack Nicholson, how that how that all played out. But Jack um, John Lithgow, though, is a great actor. And Seth, like you were saying, with his range, he's got such an amazing range. Comedy. Uh, he was incredibly terrifying in Dexter. And I thought he played a great villain in Cliffhanger. He was one of the best things kind of about that movie. Um, And yeah, I wonder, you know, he could definitely have done it. And I wondered what could have been. So, uh, I mean, it's all exists in our heads, I guess. We'll never see it. But uh, it's an interesting, uh, interesting thing to consider. And with that. We're going to take a break, but before I do, I realized that I was in such a rush to get into these news stories that I did not introduce my wonderful co-host. 
So with me today is uh, Steve J. Ray and Hello. And also, guys, uh, before we do get into that ad break, we're also going to have two clips from uh, interviews that uh, the podcast has done. And unfortunately, I was not able to be part of either of those. Uh, But we had an interview with uh, Mark Guggenheim and with Cami Garcia. And you'll be hearing clips here, uh, uh, you know, before we go to this break. So, uh, uh, Steve, can you talk a little bit about the uh, Mark Guggenheim interview? First of all, I need to tip my hat to our amazing editor-in-chief, Josh Rayner, for organising these interviews and getting these amazing talents on the show. I mean, Mark Guggenheim, what more need be said that he's been writing comics, TV and movies for so many years, so successfully legendary movies, legendary TV shows from your CSIs all the way to the much maligned but I still love Green Lantern movie to uh, producing, writing and spearheading the whole launch of the Arrowverse. I mean, from Arrow to Flash to Legends of Tomorrow, he's got his directorial debut coming up soon and um, he's managed to escape Arkham Asylum at the end of last year's Elseworlds crossover to come and bring us the crisis on infant earths and to speak to seth kelly and myself on a special edition of the dc comics news podcast and if you haven't heard this interview guys anyone who's a fan of comics anyone who's a fan of the cw arrowverse shows needs to get on board listen to this show because not only is mark a supreme talent he is one of the nicest guys i've ever had the pleasure of interviewing and it's a great show to listen to so do tune into that, download that, rate and review it, just like you do every episode. Seth, tell us about the wonderful, wonderful Cami Garcia. The one thing that I'm going to point to immediately about Cami is how much, like Mark, she is a huge comic book fan. And how much that informed what her responses were to a lot of our questions about the work that she's doing. Now, Cami Garcia actually started out with a lot of great books that she's published. She's a New York Times bestselling author. She's written X-File books that are part of the canon of the X-Files. And she's also created original content like Beautiful Creatures. So then she's approached by DC and asked about what she wants to do. And immediately what leaps out to her is, I want to do Raven, but I also want to do an entire Teen Titans line. Like, why just do one book? Why not do my favorite character? And she gives a whole wonderful list of reasons why. But also what led her to decide that she wanted to do a Titans version, what it was like getting a chance to work with Marv Wolfman and the amazing advice that he gave her. And also about her roots as a comic book fan, which if you get a chance to hear the interview and then maybe even pick up the copy of Raven, you can learn more about the Wonder Woman costume that her mother made her when she was a child and that she stubbornly wore for more than a few Halloweens. And also about her love for comics, what she's learned working with amazing artists like Gabriel, and just all the wonderful things she shared for the questions that Kelly and I had, and made such a wonderful experience for us when we're interviewing, thinking we've got the luckiest part of it, asking her questions. Her answers were such a gift. We're happy to share them with you. Okay, great. So with that, we will be right back. Of course, you have to bring up the question of the crisis on infinite Earths and how daunting or exciting or both is 
logistically pushing pulling together something like that or like Elseworlds together I mean the cast is unbelievable the easter eggs how did that all come about and how hard and satisfying is it um incredibly hard just as satisfying um and it came about like piece by little piece um you know the story that we had developed was very much by design meant to be sort of modular and create opportunities for us to bring in various characters from elsewhere in the dc universe uh going into it we knew that it couldn't just be crisis on cw earth it has to be crisis on infinite earths um but literally every single easter egg every single shout out every single cameo every single guest star was a process and um you know some of them came together easily and others really didn't um and you know there are some days you're up and some days you're down and it's very much an emotional roller coaster and um i'm still you know fighting fights uh for things in hours four and five um that air in january the i'm i will say i am amazed at what we ended up with it far exceeded my wildest expectations um but the it's like the old adage about like how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time um we didn't (laughs) go into it with like you know okay we're gonna get all these people it was okay who do we go after first okay now now who now who and it's just one step at a time one step at a time one step at a time and and just being really really dogged about it um you know i in particular was in incredibly stubborn and uh pissed off a lot of people along the way and you know uh burned some relationships um stressed out um you know stressed out others um not yeah not not uh an easy process but worth it um because for me you know crisis is such a holy text that if the choice was piss off not piss off people or or not do crisis as good as i thought it could be um i decided i would you know pretty much every every relationship was uh was was negotiable um as as long as i uh you know was making sure that that we were doing the best version of this uh that we were capable of and you know we have a lot of other a lot of other limitations, um, most of them financial, um, to work with. I, I wanted to free ourselves up as, as much as humanly possible. But that's why you've got the two extra chapters of the Arrowverse Crisis appearing in comic book form in the two 100-page giants yeah, with exactly. Mark Wolfman. I mean, that blew my mind. How did that come about? Um, that came about basically, uh, Dan Evans is a VP at, at DC that I've been working with for the last many years. Um, and he's sort of my day-to-day sort of contact person slash partner in, you know, in comics and in, sorry, in, you know, at DC comics, I should say. And, um, I, I had this idea very early on that we, this was there was an opportunity here to use the medium of comic books to get at characters and concepts 
that uh, we couldn't do either for financial or logistical reasons in, in television. Um, and I had a meeting, uh, you know, over at DC and I forget who pitched it, but someone pitched out, well, what if you were to write this with Marv? And the funny thing was, I wasn't going to write it at all. Um, you know, but I, uh, the opportunity to, to write with Marv was something I, I certainly couldn't, uh, pass up. And it was such a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, and we, we just had a blast and we ended up doing two stories. One is sort of like the quote unquote main story, um, you know, basically fills in, uh, a sig- you know, a significant piece of backstory from, um, you know, from our, you know, hour two, um, but also a backup story that basically was just something that, you know, struck Marv and I as, as just, uh, uh, you know, it told us to do a story about as many Lex Luthers as we could uh, include, uh, you know, fighting against as many supermen and superwomen as we could include. Um, and that was, uh, really, really satisfying. Um, we, we had a, we had a fun time, uh, you know, and, and I think, uh, it's an enjoyable, uh, it's an enjoyable, you know, uh, companion piece. Um, especially when you consider the fact that, you know, one of the things that the original crisis did so effectively was it, uh, you know, had not just the 12 issues, but the, the tie-in comics, um, it was nice to actually do a tie-in comic that, you know, was, you know, as much of a connection with uh, our version of Crisis as the original tie-in comics were with theirs. One of the, and I think this might be one of the most interesting takes on a DC character I've I've ever heard of, but the uh, the Criminal Insanity book that you're doing for Harley Quinn and the Joker sounds like such a fascinating and fun kind of ride, but also not fun because it's Harley Quinn and the Joker. So obviously a a whole lot darker than really anything the Teen Titans go up against. But in the process of researching and writing that, was there anything that you researched that seemed really like a, a, a case or a behavior that stood out to you as like, oh my God, that's insane? Um, well, it's actually criminal sanity. Um, because he's sane in my version. Um, the way it really came about was um, my, my, I have a good friend. His name is um, Edward Kurtz. Uh, he is a psychiatrist and a um, basically, you know, a behavior analyst, which is a profiler. And um, he was my consultant on X-Files. And he like basically has the job like, he's worked at like Arkham's like real Arkham's. Um, wow. Yeah. He was trained by, a, if you're a Mindhunter fan, he was trained by a very famous um, FBI uh, agent named Roy Hazelwood who had, who passed away, um, who was with Robert Ressler and um, John Douglas, basically responsible for, um, like part of the categorization system that we use now to classify serial killers. Hazelwood was um, really famous for um, classifying. He came up with like classifications for rapists, for serial rapists, which obviously helps helps police catch them. Um, Ed also trained under and then worked for um, Berlin, who was um, 
he was Jeffrey Dahmer's uh, defense psychiatrist. Oh, my God. And so Ed <laughs> and I have this weird thing where, you know, we talk about all of this stuff. And and in real serial killer land, um, really brilliant guys are not insane. So, like, Ted Bundy is 100% sane. You know, John Wayne Gacy is 100% sane. Most of the people that are delusional are are um, not, they don't have a high IQ. They don't do very imaginative crimes, um, you know, because obviously it's sad. I mean, if you, uh, you know, if you believe there are, you know, dragons hunting you or something and then you're killing people because they look like dragons, I mean, obviously it's horrible, but it's also really sad. And um, Joker to me has always been like, so incredibly scary and also so smart. So I wanted, what I really wanted to do is like an, a kind of an adult procedural serial killer procedural where, um, you know, I, I put, I put a profiler up against, you know, the worst serial killer imaginable, meaning the smartest, sanest, you know, most difficult to apprehend. And, um, Joker, you know, is that serial killer. Um, and to me, you know, Harley's actually a clinical psychiatrist. She, she's basically what Ed is. And so I decided that, you know, she should have, she should be able to like have her do and she should have the qualities of someone with that job. Um, as Ed says, often he has never in, you know, in history ever heard of a, um, you know, a psychiatrist falling for a psychopath. Because the first thing you know is that, A, they're not capable of love or empathy, and B, everything they tell you is going to be like a lie. It's a manipulation. So he's like, you walk in the room knowing what's going on, and he's like, and there's nothing attractive about them. There's nothing attractive about someone who has no empathy for another human being, who has no conscience. Um, And so I wanted her to be a, like, a badass, a badass profiler who is hunting the Joker. And does not fall in love with the Joker and doesn't think there's anything, you know, sexually or physically attractive about him. Um, I wanted these like two brilliant people to have to go up against each other. But I also wanted to write a real serial killer procedural that was forensically and psychologically accurate. And so Ed is actually the consultant on the um, series. And he reads every line of dialogue, all of my scripts. Uh, you know, he works on every crime scene with me. Like we, he's, he's like totally collaborates with me and we talk about, um, we talk about everything. We, he, you know, he, he really educates me on, cause like, even if I create a character or I create something like sometimes I will think, oh, well, logically this is where it would go. And he'll be like, no, 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 actually, you know, in real life, this is not, you know, what would happen. This is what would happen. And here's why. And so the uh, criminal sanity is, is interesting because it's Harley's story, but it also has a huge Joker backstory about kind of um, not how he became a psychopath because he was already a psychopath, but like how he became a monster, you know, like how, how he evolved into this incredibly, um, you know, scary figure because there are a lot of psychopaths who never hurt anyone. A lot, you know, um, there's a lot of CEOs, surgeons, people, you know, brain surgeons that are psychopaths. 
Um, they don't have any empathy. It's one of the things that makes them good at their job and impartial, but they don't hurt anyone. You know, there's a, there's usually something that triggers someone to kind of go that other direction. And, and Joker is not in my, you know, my Joker, you know, he is not crazy. He's 100% sane, which to me is much more terrifying. Um, he's a hunter, like he's a predator. He's out there hunting. He has a specific reason that he kills people. And um, the crime scenes are like very, very elaborate. Um, and that's, it's, that's, you know, kind of, part of his MO and part of, part of, um, you know, why he's doing it in the first place. This is Seth Singleton from DC Comics News, here to tell you about the Spinner Rack. Each and every week, DC Comics publishes so many great books, it can be hard to decide where to invest your time and money. And that's where the Spinner Rack comes in. The Spinner Rack is my honest attempt to rate, review, score the top five books from DC Comics each and every week. How can you listen? It's easy. All you have to do is go to your favorite platform, subscribe to DC Comics News Podcasts, and wait for the new episode to load up. Join me each and every week as I sift through the best from DC Comics and pick my top five books. Can't wait to share them with you and to hear your scores when you share them with us, right here on the DC Comics News Podcast. First, there was the DC Comics News Podcast. Then came the Spinner Rack. And now, the third show brought to you by the guys that brought you all that other stuff I just mentioned. I am the Knight. A story about the stories. A show celebrating Batman, the animated series. Week by week, episode by episode. Just when you thought it was safe to put on a pair of headphones. I am the Knight. And welcome back to DC Comics News Podcast, episode 50. Um, I, I'm your host, Brad Flicky, and with me is Steve J. Ray and Seth Singleton. And uh, we're moving on to TV and streaming news. But before we do, guys, I, uh, you know, the Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover hit this week. So I'd like to hear your input and uh, what you liked about it and, you know, uh, what you what you think of it overall, Steve? These CW crossovers have just been getting bigger and bolder and more daring, more adventurous and logistically terrifying, I must imagine, for the people making them. But uh, speaking to uh, Mark Guggenheim, um, the fact that he got most of the people he wanted, the thing that stood out for me the most was the opening section of Chapter One in Supergirl, where we see and hear Tim Burton's Batman University visited with the Danny Elfman score in the background, Robert Wall reading the Gotham Globe and the sky's turning red, the back signal in the sky and saying, big guy, I hope you're out there, um, to the brilliant flashes across different worlds and looking at different Earths and the multiverse being born, the monitor and Burt Ward working his dog, holy red skies of doom oh wow what an opening and then to see big bang theory and star trek next generations um 
Will Wheaton being a prophet of doom and the look on his face when he's attacked by a flying dragon. Everything about this show is magic. It's really making the fanboy in me geek out to the max. And finally seeing Kevin Conroy as Batman, Batwoman kicking butt. Um, the whole New World's Finest team of Kate Kane and uh, Cara Danvers. What's not to love? Is it high art? Nah, maybe not. It's not Vertigo Comics. But is it entertaining? You bet your sweet tushy it's entertaining. What do you make of it so far, Seth? My sweet tushy could not sit down for more than about five seconds while watching Crisis on Infinite Earths and trying not to leap my poor little head right through the ceiling with exultations and exclamations. Uh, Robert Wool, Burt Ward, uh, (laughs) brilliant moments there that just made me smile. Kevin Conroy with this really interesting take on a Batman who reminds me of pieces of Batman that I've seen in comics. And yet at the same time offering up some very different takes on a possible alternate history for him based on the fact that he exists on a world different from the world that our heroes are traveling from and all in an attempt to save as many worlds as possible. I love the elements that, that added just that extra bit of flavor, Steve, as you talked about with the soundtrack. And I thought that there were some great hints of future opportunities whether it was the new world's finest or the combinations of other characters and the way we might get a chance to see them once all this crisis has finished telling its tale and we can get a better sense of what kind of universe we have left brad how about you yeah i love how they're handling the cameos uh they're just so much fun and yeah i I love that Kevin Conroy got a chance to actually physically be Batman. Uh, that that was just that was just great to see. So I'm loving what they're doing so far. I can't wait to see how it progresses and how cool is it that we live at a time when something like Crisis on Infinite Earths can be adapted to television and be good. Uh, it's just a, it's just a wonderful time to be a comic book and you know a nerd you know it's just it's it's just a great time to be a fan of all this stuff absolutely for sure shadow demons too i'm just gonna say yeah. the shadow yeah. demons were something i never thought i'd see after reading them in that series and and seeing them on screen there were moments where i thought to myself wow they feel just as horrifying and relentless as they did in the comic creepy Creepy, and the monitor's beautiful. huge towers in the middle of the city. Thank you. The world's apart. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, there's just, and those little touches, those details that really speak to you as a fan that, that make you go, you know, I got plenty of time, you know, during this big break that's supposed to happen. I could probably read the books again and just sort of love every second. I think I will. I already see myself carving free time <laughs> just to dive back I think back I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to be really fun to read those during this interminable break that's eventually coming our way. But boy, yeah. they're, they're clearly stocking as much as possible. So we'll probably be compelled to watch at least one more time, if not two through uh, everything 
just so we can sort of stave off those weeks until we get a chance to see the uh, conclusion. A good oh, way. And the Titans cameo. Back. The Titans appeared as well. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. So moving on with the TV and streaming news. Uh, looks like Thomas Lennon will be joining Supergirl as Mr. Mitzelplik. Steve, what do you think about this? This is great. This 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 character, this actor, has always made me giggle whenever I've seen him or heard him. I mean, from voice roles in uh, Batman Return of the Cape Crusaders to he was a chief of horror in that, to all the cartoons he's appeared in, to his recent take as the uh, all new, all different, but ultra hilarious Leo gets in the recent uh, Lethal Weapon TV show, to obviously his most famous and world-renowned role as Joey Tribbiani's hand twin in Friends. Um, listen, <laughs> Mixius Pitalik, it could not have been better cast. I'm looking forward to it. Tom Lennon is hilarious, and he can give you that look of pure evil too. I think it's inspired casting, and I'm really looking forward to see what he brings to the role. Uh, Seth, what did you make of this casting news, my friend? I was immediately intrigued as soon as I thought of what Thomas Lennon can do with a character like Mitzuplik. I remember this guy when a girlfriend at the time would watch obsessively recorded episodes of The State and what it meant to see him in this ensemble just doing these wonderful, hilarious, comedic things that that represented just some really fun skit comedy. And everything I saw him in afterwards took me back to that that just knowing that almost awareness that's behind the surface, that's right behind his eyes, sort of saying, I know what I'm doing, but you know what I'm thinking. And that awareness that he can bring when he's playing this character, it's an amazing casting that I, I think for me immediately brings to mind the character of Q from Star Trek The Next Generation. And this idea of, how just enough humor, just enough levity can make intelligence so menacing. And the ability of Mitzaplik to exist within that, you know, world of dimension beyond ours reminds me of that great line from a movie. And if you remember what this movie's from, then you'll you'll know what I'm talking about with me without even have to say the title. But it's the idea of someone saying, yeah, well, you know, If you're on a street and there's a car accident and it's so many blocks ahead, you don't know what's going on. But the guy who's 14 stories up in a building can look far enough ahead to see what's going on and let you know if they choose to. Now, does that person having that ability to see things, does that make them God or just somebody with a better view? I don't think of Mitzaplik as a God. I think of him as someone very intelligent, very powerful and with a view that allows him to move around pieces like a chess master, like a puppeteer. And the only thing that seems to hold him back is that misfit-like mirthfulness. And because of that, I really think we've got a perfect casting that could define a character that for many of us was just that imp in the comics and then through his evolution, we now reach this point where he could really become something entirely different on the screen. Brad, what's your take, my friend? I, yeah, I've been a fan of his since, and I'm glad you mentioned it, the state. Uh, that was 
I missed the state. State was so good. And you know, 911. Um, and, and said, I thought you brought something up good that he could redefine the role. I think he really could. Uh, he's very mis- mischievous and and smart, and I think he can br- have a lot of fun with that role. I think that it, you know, perfect casting for sure. Uh, I can't wait to see what he would do with the role. I'm I'm kind of laughing about it in my head just thinking about it. Um, yeah, perfect casting for sure. And we also this week we got a trailer for uh, the Star Girl uh, TV series. Uh, Steve, what do you think about this? It's great. Um, as soon as I hear a mention of the Justice Society of America, the aging fanboy in me just smiles because their resurgence now is complete. They're back in the comics. They're back larger than life. Anyone who hasn't read Doomsday Clock 12 yet, it's out this Wednesday. OMFG. Wowza. And to see the cosmic rod, to see Starman passing on the legacy, to see her make her costume. Listen, oh, wow, I cannot wait for this series. And with the news that it's going to be on DC Universe and then airing on the CW so that everyone can watch it without subscribing to to a streaming service, much like um, Harley Quinn airs on DC Universe. And then a week later is on Adult Swim. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant positive powerful new character in a beautifully directed looks like it's produced with all the money in the world thrown out of the trailer uh lou cohen surprise uh, guest star i'm looking forward to this immensely what about you seth i'm really excited i mean the teaser that we got introduced to us just how young this character is but this longer trailer now shows us the support system that will be part of her foundation as she grows into the hero that we've loved in comics. The fact that Luke Wilson and Joel McHale are clearly from this trailer perfectly cast and have the opportunity to bring their best qualities, uh, layers of humor, great depth, and uh, I think overall an ability to convey authenticity, real emotion, um, And also a sense of willingness to say when they don't know or when they're able to sort of show that they've got a grasp on things. But that doesn't mean they've got everything figured out, just like all the rest of us. And these are characters who really need that sort of depth to them. And they're going to be very important when we get a chance to see the growth of Stargirl and the success and fails that come with it, both for her and for those around her. And what this means even more importantly, I think for me is, is the ability to see an original star man to see our man, Wildcat, Dr. Midnight, all brought to life. And, and what this is going to look like through the eyes of Stargirl as she's growing into her role and she's learning different things, positive and negative lessons from each But more importantly, I feel like it just continues to feed this initial spark that was started with the trailer, that teaser, that initial introduction. And now we're going to see that continue to grow. And that's to the benefit of old fans and new alike. Brad, what about you, my friend? Oh, yeah. The cast 
uh, looks great. The like you were saying, the support system, it's good. It's great to see Starman, and you know, I, I I'm ex- so excited about the Justice Society. So, uh, and Joel McHale, Luke Wilson. I mean, this is we've got a really good cast here, and um, yeah, I, I think it's going to deliver on the promise for sure. Um, I, I definitely. Uh, plan to tune in and I, I and i am so glad that it's going to be on cw2 because i think this is you know it, it deserves to have a big audience a bigger That's possible huge. audience i think that is a very uh very good thing and with that we're going to move on to uh comic book news uh first up uh, wonder woman and flash are going to resume the uh, legacy number uh, numbering with issue 750 on both titles. Steve, what do you think of this? I'm really glad that DC changed their minds about this because at first it was uh, advertised that they'd have the 750 and then go back to the rebirth numbering. But the fact that they're reverting to 750, 751, 752, just as action comics and detective comics did, is important to me because like this says in the uh, article as with action and detective one of the flash are part of the dna of the dc universe and resuming the legacy numbering for these titles enables both past and current fans to embrace the rich history of both these iconic characters and as a reaffirmation that in the dc universe everything counts and i love that line because despite numerous revamps retcons uh, continuity changes some stories remain a timeless and it needs to be recognized i just think it's a wonderful tribute to all the writers and artists who've contributed to these fantastic series that even though they've renumbered them a thousand times now they're going back to the classic numbering the legacy numbering meaning that all those stories are valid all those stories mean something we're not just wiping out 80 years of, of continuity this is important for everybody. And yeah, I know it makes it harder for some fans to complete their collections. They're not going to find the other 749 issues. But hey, as a way of honoring all the fine talents who've contributed to these series, it's important. And listen, you've got your complete runs of uh, the New 52, you've got your complete runs of the George Perez era, you've got your complete runs of uh, Rebirth. So you can say, yes, I have got complete runs of Wonder Woman, but now from 751 onwards, if you're brave and if you're a dedicated fan, you've got that challenge, that gold mine, that treasure hunt of tracking down as many of the old episodes as you can. And that to me is just pure magic. And it makes me really happy. I think it, it's, it's well deserved for these brilliant titles, these brilliant characters and all the fine writers, artists, colorists and editors who've contributed to their adventures. What about you, Seth? What do you make of this story? I love the way you just pointed to the legacy and the recognition of the history, Steve. Thanks for bringing that up. I I think it's really important, and I don't think I could have said it any better. And actually, what I'm going to do, because I'm recognizing that, is point to something else that I think is really interesting about the timing of this. You mentioned on our last story, if anyone has not read Doomsday Clock 12 by the time this episode has been aired, and it's coming out just a few days. There is a point in which we're sort of experiencing an impact of this. I'm not sure what you would call it. I mean, I don't know if it falls into to meta or not, but Doomsday Clock suggests that this numbering was affected 
potentially from the actions of characters within that story and that the concepts of the of the 52 of rebirth were brought about by the character in that story i'm jumping around a bit and i know i'm not making a lot of sense for anybody who hasn't read it yet but there's a timing going on here right now that suggests that this is a perfect time to do it because there was this break that occurred in the continuity itself of DC Comics. And that through these restarts, there were things missing, there were gaps, there were holes, and that was the story that Doomsday Clock was trying to address. And at its conclusion, it feels as though DC is saying, okay, those were these upheavals that existed. And they changed the way we looked at things because of the way continuity was constantly being restarted and yet now that we've told this story let's go back let's recognize that that portion these chapters of that story have been told and parts of them have come to a a close other parts will continue but that we can also do a physical recognition of that through this return to our original numbering and also give a, a bit of not quite, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not there, but give something to that period of these restarts that says this wasn't just a series of false starts. This was something that was part of a story that we've told in Doomsday Clock and that we've talked about how this could have all been part of how comics can come into the real world and mess with things as simple as numbering. But now that that's come to a close and there's been this resolution, let's come back to the numbering that never really left, even when we couldn't see it the way we were used to. Brad, how about you? Uh, Well, that makes me really curious to read Doomsday Clock 12, because I have not yet. So, hmm, it does make me curious. I I just think overall there's something very clean about legacy numbering, even though it's kind of messed up because of all the rebirths and 52 and all that. But it does give a certain weight and gravitas to everything that's come before. Uh, and it doesn't scrape it off the table, uh, you know, like like you were saying, Steve. So I kind of I, I, I always appreciate legacy numbering. So I hope that uh, I like to see that continue. And up next, uh, we learned that DC is celebrating Robin's 80th birthday with a super spectacular issue. Uh, Steve, what do you think about this? Once again, what can I say? The original sidekick. We've had. Action Comics 1000, and what a comic that was. Detective Comics 1000, which I raved about in my reviews, and I raved about again when they launched the deluxe edition with the two new stories. And now, Robin, as I said, the original sidekick, the one who started it all. There'd be no Bucky, there'd be no Toro, there'd be no anything without Dick Grayson and Robin. And even though uh, Mr. Grayson's moved on to become Nightwing, even though we've had Tim Drake, we had Stephanie Brown for a while, we've had Damian Wayne, we had alternate parallel world future Robins and Carrie Kelly. The character of Robin is that one consistent, the ray of light in the darkness of Batman's life. The thing that shows him exactly what it is he's fighting for, the innocent he saved from becoming the vengeful driven vigilante that he is. And to recognize this character the only the third character in comic book history to have been around consistently having new adventures published every single year for 80 years is 
absolutely phenomenal. I cannot wait till March. I cannot wait to see this Robin special edition comic celebrating this wonderful character. And I hope we see every Robin we've ever seen in these pages because that's what the character deserves. Um, listen, as a Batman fan, this is one of the best pieces of news I think I could have had to close out a year, which to me has been a landmark year for DC. It's proven to people that they can make phenomenal films. They can still be a success and still produce the best comics on the shelves. I'm overjoyed. Really, really happy by this. Seth, what did you make of it, my friend? So many things that I thought when I first read this story and so many more when I was listening to you talk, Steve. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is, yes, the original sidekick, the, the bright light, the, the light to balance the darkness and to always help keep the darkness from overtaking Batman, from being that ability to see more, see possibility. And one of those great qualities that makes Dick Grayson such an amazing detective because he understands how to see things through a dark lens. But he was born with a brightness that allows him to naturally see things that maybe Batman has to work harder to, to remove the, the grim specter that so often overshadows how he approaches things. To the fact that Dick Grayson evolved, became Nightwing, and because of that, we had the opportunity to experience a new take through Jason Todd, and the many things that happen after he was no longer Robin and the stories that can still be told because he once wore the mantle with so many examples to, to choose from Stephanie Brown uh, all the way down to Tim Drake to maybe some glances to the future. To this day, I have an amazing place in my heart for uh, Grant Morrison's uh, One Million Run. And the Android Robin from that oh, sort yeah, of future time. Wonder. The Toy Wonder with these beautiful quips and also this really interesting take, a downloaded consciousness of Robin into an Android, but also with this dry wit and this understatedness that just made me smile whenever he appeared. To <laughs> There's been at least one appearance of the uh, Starro character from Justice League taking on a Robin-like persona and and this very, uh, you know, kick-ass approach to it. <laughs> you know, this very, like, off-the-cuff, swearing constantly. All these different versions we might get a chance to see. There's only ever been one Batman. I mean, we can look ahead to the future to Batman Beyond, but really, for all of us, it's been Bruce Wayne. But Robin is a mantle that's been passed on that many of aspired to take on and because of that we have so many wonderful characters so many versions and all of the wonderful stories that go with it so really i'm i'm so intrigued with all the places we can go with this and my goodness i just read the list of creators and contributors and your heart's just gonna have this little childlike delight to it i i couldn't be happier for a character i couldn't be happier for the first sidekick and I can't be any happier now than I know I will be when I open the book and I read each story and think to myself beautiful brilliant lovely memorable all I could ask for uh, Brad how about you yeah you know Robin is not a character that gets the respect that maybe he deserves so 
you know, the fact that he's been around so long, he kind of does deserve this, this, this celebration. And you're absolutely right. There are so many different incarnations of, of Robin who's been Robin. Uh, so there's so much fertile ground for storytelling with the different people who have been Robin over the years. And these creative teams that these people are just, it's, it's an incredible amount of talent. Marv Wolfman, Chuck Dixon, I mean, just the names uh, are just incredible. And I, and I really, one name that popped out of me is Judd Winnick, because I haven't seen him doing a lot of stuff lately, and I always enjoyed his DC stuff in the 2000s, so I'm uh, kind of glad to see his name come back around. So, yeah, I can't, I can't wait for this. This is going to be, this is going to be just as good as the, you know, Detective Comics 1000 and uh, uh, Action Comics 1000 that came out. So, yeah, this is, this is going to be definitely one to pick up for sure. And our last bit of comic book news is that we finally learned a little bit more about uh, the upcoming Strange Adventure series that's coming out in the spring. Steve, how would you think about this? Just seeing that title reminds me of those classic pulp sci-fi magazines with a huge logo emblazoned on the cover and cosmic painted artwork of whatever monster or astronaut or space creature or or galactic battles going on in those books and then to see that this is going to be made by the stellar talents that brought us Mr Miracle when you've got Tom King when you've got Mitch Gerrads and when you've got Doc Shaner joining up to give us a 12-issue miniseries about Adam Strange. I cannot help but be excited. Um, he didn't get enough of the limelight now that Krypton's been cancelled. And I'll always hearken back, and I think, Brad, you'll agree here, that Alan Moore's fantastic take on the character in Swamp Thing when uh, Swampy was banished to outer space and he couldn't um, oh, join with the green on Earth. And that whole thing of... Not knowing where you're going to be from one minute to the next. Are you going to be zapped across the universe to your love, to the planet Ran and away from Earth where you grew up? And rocket packs and laser guns yeah. and Thanagarians and aliens. Listen, Tom King did amazing things with Mr. Miracle. I cannot wait to see what he does with Adam Strange. Really excited. Seth, what do you make of it? To begin with, uh, the parallel immediately that exists between Tom King's run on Mr. Miracle and the one that's already available with uh, Adam Strange. Because the first thing that comes to mind is the fact that these characters are similar for one unique thing that that I, I can identify. And that is the fact that both of them are heroes when they're not on Earth. Mr. Miracle is an escape artist and he's a performer and entertainer, but it's on Apocalypse where he really reigns as the guy, Scott Free, who got free. And the one thing I always got a kick out of with Adam Strange is when the Zeta Beam kicks him out to Ren, he's got powers. I mean, he's got the rocket pack, but he's strong and everything about him changes. Bring him back to Earth and he's just another guy. I mean, yes, he's uh, gifted and he has amazing qualities but when he goes back and you never know as you point out when it's going to happen there he's an amazing figure and i always love this story about someone who 
in their own environment is just sort of ordinary. But placed in another environment, they become extraordinary. Also, their love story isn't perfect. And I love this idea of it talking about the moments when it wasn't perfect and how you go on to have a great love when you've had so many challenges that are part of how you formed who you are now, but also were, of course, something that you had to go through in order to experience this now. Um, I also love the idea that (laughs) this is something that I felt was hinted at earlier with Grant Morrison's run on Green Lantern, when Green Lantern pays a visit, and we get a chance to see some of these wonderful moments. As you pointed out, Steve, we also got hints from Krypton and that story we didn't get a chance to see uh, come to a conclusion, especially because we got to you know, see the uniform. We got to see the role that it played on that series, but we didn't get to see anything beyond it. And I felt that we had a chance in the Green Lantern, I think it was number six, to see Ran and to see a little bit about the politics that are involved. But beyond that, really, it's just hints and taste. This is a chance to actually sink your teeth in. And it was something that I loved from Mr. Miracle. And I loved that comparison between the two different worlds, the two different lives, the two different identities, and how they can overlap and what they mean for everything that's going on inside, but beneath the the surface of the person. And a love story, which I feel is where Tom King really excels. Um, The love story in Mr. Miracle, the love story in Batman, this love story, each one I feel is going to play to its strengths. And you bring in uh, extremely gifted, talented artists to complement all of that. And we have an amazing gift waiting for us. One I can't wait to collect individually as a book and in, I'm sure, more than a few different copies. Uh, Brad, how about you, my friend? Uh, you know, I don't care what character it is. If this creative team is is writing it and drawing it i'm there and the fact that it's adam strange just makes it that much better uh and i do agree that uh the take on the character on krypton was a lot of fun and and steve i'm right there with you on the swamp thing uh i think that that tom king is just going to do an amazing job and i think that this is for a lot of comic book fans, I think this is going to be one of the big comic events of 2020, having having that team back together for a character that they can have so much fun with. Uh, you know, there's there's it's, it's it's limitless what they can do with this character. So I'm definitely definitely excited for this. And and 12 issues is not going to be enough. And <laughs> Never so, is. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. And that wraps up yet another episode of the DC Comics News Podcast. But before we go, uh, Steve, where can people find you? I've been causing chaos across the internet for a while now, uh, particularly majorly on Dark Knight News uh, and DC Comics News, writing reviews, interviewing artists, writers, costume designers, actors, and other luminaries from across the world's of the DC universe. The easiest way to catch up with all of that is literally just doing a simple Google search for Steve J Ray, and you'll find links to everything I've done and to my Twitter account, which is L Steveo E L underscore S T E E V O. And you can catch me there. Please give us a shout. 
drop us a line. Thanks for all the wonderful things you're saying about the I Am The Night podcast, which has joined this brilliant show, Seth's fantastic spinner rack every week as the third show in the DC Comics News Network. Thank you all so much. And um, keep listening and keep letting us know what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. Seth, where can the world find you? Well, I've been known to darken the halls of Twitter as the number one more singleton. Uh, you can sometimes find a photographic reflection of something related to me on Instagram as Seth the Writer. But more importantly, you can find me here at DC Comics News. I will make appearances, writing reviews. You can find me as a co-host on this amazing podcast that I can't believe it's at number 50 and I've shared so many wonderful experiences with Brad, Steve, and Kelly who couldn't be with us today, but we're looking forward to the next 50 we all get to share together. It's been a wonderful thing that has birthed the Spinner Rack and I Am The Night. It's because of the collaboration, the conversations we would have before and after about how much fun we're having, the things we'd love to keep talking about that brought about those shows and that I believe is leading to so many more. Brad, I don't know what your show is going to be, my friend, but I can't wait for it because I know it's going to be inspired. <laughs> I know I'll be subscribing and promoting it, and I know I'll get to hear ads of it on the Spinner Rack or when I listen to I Am The Night or when I'm listening to our great conversations on the DC Comics News podcast. Let's hear it for 50 more, 50 more, 50 more after that. Thank you. If you're a listener, a subscriber, someone listening for the first time, hear from the beginning, or just catching a snippet. More importantly, we don't do this just because we like the idea of listening to our own voices. We love it because we love the things that we're talking about. We love the chance to share it with you because we know what it means when we discover these stories thanks to a great editor like Josh. And when we get to hear ideas we never considered because of collaborations with amazing people like Brad, Steve, Kelly, I'm really happy to be here. I know I was just supposed to tell you where to reach me, but I also want to pass on a message of just genuine heartfelt thanks. Brad, where can everybody find you, my friend? I can find me writing news and reviews at DC Comics News. You can follow me on Twitter at FlickyB1, F-I-L-I-C-K-Y-B, and the number one. And yeah, just just to echo uh, uh, Seth, you know, I, I love... The, this recording every week and and doing this podcast and i got to thank you guys for turning me on to such great stuff uh steve especially justice league dark uh, you know it's just it's, it's so much fun to have that exposure to new things through you know new people so thank you guys for that uh and what a landmark episode and here is 250 more uh dc comics news is now on all major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. So please head over and subscribe to the podcast and tell us what you think. And you can follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube at DC Comics News. And be sure to check out uh, our other related podcasts on the DC Comics News podcast, uh, Spinner Rack, and I Am The Night. And as always, read more comics. Thanks, guys. Before we go, can I just say one one thing? Seth, Brad, you've both already commented beautifully on what this show means to us. And may I say that you guys 
a family now. The whole <laughs> hive mind thing that we've brought together is a thing of joy. Kelly, we miss you. Josh, we wish you could appear on more episodes. Um, this is your baby. When the show started out, it was just Joshua on his own talking DC. And now we've hit 50 episodes and it's grown and it's going to grow still. There's now three shows. And when Brad launches his fashion show, Nice Pair of Jeans, <laughs> looking at all the costumes of the DC universe and every character that's ever shown, then we will be closer to our plan of world domination. So, yes, read more comics, listen to our shows, because otherwise we'd just be sitting in a corner doing naughty things and getting into a lot of trouble. Thank you.